0: Please pray with me. Lord, as we come to you on this second Sunday of Advent, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit that we might prepare a place for you and for your coming in a new way this year. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. An impatient curiosity is stronger than the fear that grips me. I leave the courtyard and make my way onto the road. At the fence of a neighboring field, a man is sitting on the edge of the embankment. He is harnessed with big bags and armed from head to foot, rifle, pistol, and some sort of knife. He makes a sign to me to approach him. In English, I ask him if his plane was shot down. He negates that and, in a low voice, shoots back an incredible news. It's the big invasion. Thousands and thousands of paratroopers are landing in the countryside tonight. His French is excellent. I am an American soldier, but I speak your language well. My mother is a French woman. I ask him, what's going on along the coasts? Are there landings? And what about the Germans? I was babbling. My emotions were overwhelming, my thoughts. Ignoring my questions, he asked me about the proximity of the enemy and its relative presence in the area. I reassure him, there are no Germans here. The closest troops are stationed at St. Mary Iglace, almost two kilometers from here. He's perfectly calm and self-controlled. But the hand but the hand that I shake is a little sweaty and stiff. I wish him luck in a voice that tries to be cheerful, and he adds in English, so that only I can understand. The days to come are going to be terrible. Good luck, Mademoiselle. thank you. I will not forget you for the rest of my life. And he disappears like a vision in a dream. Those are the memoirs of a uh, lady by the name of, of Madame Hamel Hetou, a schoolteacher in France. And she's recording her memory of June 5th, the night of June 5th, 1944, which most of us know is the D-Day invasion of Europe when the Allies land for the first time on the continent in France. What does it have to do with Advent? As we continue in the season of Advent and as we continue here doing the canticles, we remember the twin themes of Jesus' coming. And we remember that Jesus' coming is an invasion. The first time and the second time. For the first time, God became man in Jesus Christ at Christmas. And the second time, Jesus will come again as judge at the end. As we've said before, Advent is a season of waiting. Somehow, thousands of years have dampened our anticipation, though. We can't feel the urgency of waiting as well, it seems, though we just sang it with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That gets at the urgency of the waiting for the return of Jesus. But today's readings, which are a treasure trove of things, so I really struggled limiting myself, today's readings remind us of these things, among others. First, that they remind us of the promises of God. Second, they remind us of the joy of Christ's coming. And third, they remind us of our longing For his return. So, the promises of God, the joy of Christ's coming, and our longing for his return. Let's first look at the promises of God, and I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open with me to Isaiah chapter 11. It can also be found in the scripture insert if you'd prefer to look there. Isaiah chapter 11. verse 1. We read from the prophet Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Who is Isaiah referencing here? Well, of course, we know this to be Jesus Christ. But we also should note that this Jesus Christ, this prophecy talking about him, is talking about his first coming, but it's also talking about his second coming for while that part of the prophecy has has been fulfilled, there is yet more to come. Look with me at verse 6 again, speaking of of the first part of the prophecy. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And then... Jumping down to verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. You see, there's thousands and thousands of years between verse 8 and verse 9. That's where we are. That's where we are this babe has come or will on Christmas in 4 BC and this babe will lead them. Now, I don't know about you. I have a five-month-old, almost five-month-old daughter. She's not leading anybody. (laughs) Well, in a way, she's in charge, but she's certainly not leading anybody, right? All she does is sit there on the table and smile very cutely. But, Here we're told a babe shall lead them. Who is this babe? Well, it's Jesus Christ, of course. God become man who will lead his people. And notice that this babe, unlike any other, is going to have dominion, not only to lead the righteous people of God, but also to have dominion over nature itself, to rule nature itself. I mean... I'm not going to put Bridget out over a snake's hole and say, hey, put your hand in there, right? That would be silly for us to do to our babies. And yet, that's what this says about Jesus, this babe. Someone who commands nature itself. Obviously, this child that Isaiah is speaking about is going to be different than any other. Isaiah uses beautiful imagery here in his prophesying. In prophesying the comings of Christ, both the first and the second. But turn your attention with me now to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. The beginning of his story actually comes from the Gospel of Luke, which we didn't read this year in Advent. Sometimes we read his story, but we said his canticle today. So in order to frame his canticle... Turn with me now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. This is not in your scripture insert. Luke chapter 1. Who is this Zechariah? What does he do? He's a priest. He's a priest in the temple, right? He's married to Elizabeth, and both of them were told in Luke chapter 1 were righteous and walked blamelessly before God. That's a pretty good endorsement from Scripture itself, right? Both were righteous and walked blamelessly before God, and yet Elizabeth was barren. Was barren. She had no children. She had no ability to have children. So Zechariah is serving in his capacity as a priest. In the temple, he enters into the priest, into the temple rather as the priest. He takes incense and he offers incense at the altar of incense before God as an offering. And he's doing that here in chapter 1. And all of a sudden, the archangel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that Elizabeth would soon have a son. Look at 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Zechariah asks Gabriel how he should know that what Gabriel has spoken to him is going to happen. It's kind of a silly question when an angel's confronting you, and yet that's what Zechariah does, and because of his unbelief, he's rendered temporarily mute. He's not able to speak. Look at Luke 1. Fifty-nine. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. So Zechariah goes from his son being announced to him by an angel in the temple to being mute, unable to speak for nine months or so, until the child is born, who we know to be John the Baptist. And the child is brought before the temple, as is the ritual of the Jews, and is named in the temple and in an act of obedience to god zachariah names the child john and as soon as he voices that or actually signs that he's able to voice his blessings to god the obedience precedes his ability to praise god notice as soon as he says that he can speak And the first thing that he says is what? The Benedictus, the canticle that we said today, his praising of God, his praising of God. He's had a long time to think about this, hasn't he? Look with me at the canticle, which is found in the prayer book on page 19. I know we're flipping around a lot this morning, but there's a lot of connections here. Page 19 of the Book of Common Prayer, which is from Luke 1. The first words out of his mouth are Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior born of the house of his servant David. Notice his faith is supercharged by this time of waiting. The first thing that he says is not, man, I'm glad I can talk, or isn't it great that I, we have a baby, Elizabeth? But blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people to set them free. Zachariah has had nine months or so to think about this, and as a priest, he no doubt has searched the Scriptures trying to figure out what Gabriel is said to him, Gabriel mentions that his son John the Baptist is going to be like Elijah. So I'm sure he was familiar with the book of Samu- books of Samuel and Kings, and God promised where God promises that one of David's sons will reign forever. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, reads this way. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Zechariah knows that while his son is not the Savior, he is making a way for the Savior. And also he knows because Mary has come to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the previous chapter, that that Savior is going to be John's cousin, who's going to be named Jesus. Therefore, he continues in our canticle exclaiming, He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Of course, Zechariah here is referring back to God's promise of covenant to Abraham back in Genesis And the covenant that we hear about throughout the Old Testament from the prophets where God promises that no matter what they do, He will not abandon His people. He will save them, just as Isaiah foretells. We continue on with the canticle. This was the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship Him without fear, Holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. Zechariah realizes that he's going to be privileged and is privileged at this point to see part of God's fulfilling this promise, this covenant. That's an exciting thing. Let's not miss the fact here that while that's all going on theologically, and I think Zechariah sees parts of it, this is happening with his own son. With he and Elizabeth, who had this miraculous conception that produces John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, which is sometimes called the last prophet of the Old Testament, is also an opening shot against the enemies of God, isn't he? He's like that paratrooper. He's the first to land. The first to land. Did you ever think about it that way? Once again, In this canticle, the canticle changes voice, notice, at this verse. What do I mean? Well, we go from Zechariah praising God to Zechariah turning to his son. Do you see? It goes from praising God to, You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist, called the last of the Old Testament prophets, is also called the forerunner of Christ. And he fulfills this role to a T, just as Zechariah and the angel Gabriel prophesied. Now look today with me at today's Gospel from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1, which Father Joshua read to us. Matthew 3, verse 1. Here we meet John the Baptist many years later as a grown man. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight. Jumping down to 11, John the Baptist tells those around him, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. What's John doing? He's calling them to salvation through repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. He's calling them to prepare themselves for Christ, for his cousin, Jesus. The Greek word here that's translated repentance is perhaps one that you've heard before. It's metaneo, meaning to turn, to do a U-turn, to change course, to change direction. There's also another meaning to it, though. When one repents, one heartily amends with abhorrence one's past sins, is the definition given by Strong's Concordance. One who is hearty, who heartily amends with abhorrence one's past sins. What does that mean? It means that you look at your past sin and you don't say, nah, not so bad. I'm better than the next guy. It means that I look at it with disgust. How could I have done that? How could I have engaged in that? Let me ask you, in your repentance, does it look like that? Is that what confession looks like every week when we come before the altar and say, most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Do we look at our sin with abhorrence? Let's continue. If we're to prepare the way for the kingdom of God, we're given this specific direction by John, not just for the first coming of Jesus, but for the second. That to repent is to turn away from our sins and that that continual process goes on with urgency. That our repentance is urgent. If you pray the daily offices, morning, evening, midday, Compline, and the Book of Common Prayer, you know that you're given multiple times throughout the day to confess your sins. Why is that? Is it because we you know like to beat up ourselves? Is it because we like to think terribly of ourselves? No, of course not. It's because we realize that there's a war going on inside of each of us. A war going on between the flesh, the world, and the devil, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit has won that war at the final end, and yet here we are struggling. Why? Because we're still stuck in occupied enemy territory. We still face a powerful enemy, even though he's been beaten. And so we approach the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, with a longing, or at least we should. And every little bit of the coming of his kingdom is a longing that we should have, should give us a longing for the fulfillment of his kingdom. So if you're finding this year's Advent readings or sermon topics a little dark, then let me suggest that it might be because it's become the case that you're taking your sin too lightly. Or you're taking God's forgiveness too lightly, which is more important. But notice the first precedes the second. If I take my sin too lightly, why do I care about the Savior? Why do I care about the Liberator? Why do I care about the one who's going to come and subject all those things that I abhor? Don't slough off your sin thinking it's not a big deal or it's really not that bad. Because to do so is actually committing treason to your God. While it's true that there are things that are good in this world, We're called to be in this world, but not of this world. And John the Baptist's call is to turn back from treachery that we all start in naturally. From treachery, from treason against God, from our sinful behaviors to identify it, to abhor it, to confess it, and to long for God to bring us into his light. That's the beautiful part. Of the rest of the canticle, though, isn't it? Do you see we cycle right back to the promise? In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us, we're told, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's Zechariah prophesying? That, that this is promised in Christ. That if we are faithful to repent and confess, Christ is faithful to us to see to completion that which He's begun in us through His Holy Spirit. Why do we say this canticle every morning in our daily office? To remind us of the promise of God. To help us keep the year-round in mind the joy of Christ's first coming in the incarnation and to long after the kingdom that we have a taste of here but don't see in its fullness yet. We need to be reminded that we're in occupied territory, that we are in the shadow of death, that we are in a land of darkness like Madame Hamel Hato who could not know that on June 5th her her full liberation would begin, we don't know the time or the hour when Christ will return as our liberator, as our savior, as our freer from this embattled state. We do know that he came to save us some 2,000 years ago. And we also know that he has come he has promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. And finally, we know that his kingdom will have no end. He will come to shine on those who dwell in darkness, in the shadow of death. Let us be preparing within ourselves, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives that are able to see and truly rejoice as his, at his coming. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we ask that the words of the Benedictus of Zechariah would be found as fruits in our lives, that with full joy we might look forward to your second coming, to your return, because we have been prepared for it. Lord, we ask that you would be with us the rest of this Advent season. Help us to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that which we can't do on our own. Make us instruments of your peace and make in us a mansion where you might be, where you might come to dwell. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.